The healthcare system is broken, but it doesn't have to be. This is Revenue Cycle Optimized by Infinix Healthcare. We discuss the latest challenges in the revenue cycle space and provide actionable tips on how to overcome them at your organization. Good afternoon, everyone. Really appreciate everyone joining us today for another episode of Office Hours. Today, I have Jennifer Glockson. That is it. You got it, Okay, awesome. Awesome. And we're going to talk about a subject that's with the final rule that came out last month, January 17th. It's officially called the CMS Interoperability and Final Rule. And for those who like to index with numbers, it's the CMS-057-F final rule. And we're going to lay out exactly what does this mean? What's the impact to not only practices, but also the impact to payers? Because there's a lot of requirements that payers have to meet. You're going to find out a lot of good changes as well with this final rule. And it's only going to impact or it's geared towards what they call impact payers. Impact payers are including anybody that's Medicare Advantage organizations, your Medicaid's, your CHIP fee for services, your Medicaid managed care plans, also your CHIP managed care plan entities, et cetera, those kind of plans. Doesn't mean commercial, doesn't follow suit. We're going to get into that a little later in the episode. And most of these changes are going to go in effect January 2027. But I mentioned that date because typically when a final rule like this comes out and there's a date that's so far off because everyone's thinking, wow, that's three years away. What are we going to do between now and then? But there's a lot of things that have to go in motion. Anytime there's legislation that comes out and it affects IT vendors in particular, I'm very appreciative and Phoenix is very appreciative. I'm certain EHR companies and PM systems and even clearinghouses all appreciate the fact that they give us some time to actually, but we're going to uncover some things that this may not be as new as we like to think. Now, the purpose obviously, is to improve the electronic exchange of healthcare data, as well as streamlining the whole prior authorization process. And I know probably getting a lot of amens out there for that, <laughs> a lot of gratitude that, that goes along with that. But before we dive into all this, this really isn't the first time Medicare is requiring prior auth, right? No. So this actually isn't the first time that they're requiring prior auth. Back in 2023, CMS did assign 53 codes that now require prior authorization for your traditional Medicare Part B patients. And this diverges from their previous policy that for Medicare Part B patients, there were no auths required for the Part B services. And I'm sure that probably took a lot of people by surprise. Uh, it did. I that it did. I imagine. And even though the final rules come out, it's almost like they're, they're, hey, they're telling you what's going to happen before it happens. They even do it in a proposed rule format. Anyone that's ever read the final rule, you know, it's really good bedtime reading. But not a lot of people dive into that because it's, it's a lot of pages, a lot of redundancies. You really have to have a discipline to motor through it. But there are those who probably got did get caught by surprise by the fact that, oh, wait a minute, what's happening? It's affecting right. the denials. It's, it's affecting the Projections, it really breaks down the whole RCM process. So, Jennifer, let's talk about the impact or the benefits, if you will, that this will offer providers. So, the biggest benefit is that it's going to offer providers and facilities savings, right? So, in the 2024 CMS ruling, it's a huge win for physicians and practices. The AMA is projecting that these updates and streamlining this process 
is going to save practices and providers around $15 billion over the next decade, just shaving down the time and, and effort that has to go into the prior authorization process. So it's a huge savings for the, for the providers. So there's three major changes to this year's final rule. So the first big change is that by 2027, plans are going to have to start supporting an electronic interoperability between the provider's EMR and the insurance company. So this is set to include things such as, excuse me, checking the prior authorization requirements, checking for clinical sufficiency, ensuring that there is a way for practices to electronically submit these requests and that the receipt of these requests are now going to be electronic. So this is great because it brings automation and efficiency to our current process that we all know is very time consuming and, and very manual, if you will, for a lot of these insurance companies. And obviously we all know how time consuming that calls to the insurance company can be for not only providers, but their, their clinical support staff, you know, who would actually probably prefer to focus on their, their patient's care rather than filling out paperwork. Right, right. Exactly. It's always been a big headache for everyone out there. Yes. And that's where, you know, you're thinking $15 billion over the next decade. This is a large part of that, the time savings, your FTEs, your coders and billers and whatnot who have to, and schedulers who have to look into this and repetitive because it's something that you get denied. Then you have to, because you have to make a correction, it's rejected. Then you have to put in another prior authorization notice again and again and again, you know, it's almost like, you know, when, when can we get this pulled through? So yeah. So yeah. So the next big change is actually going to become effective in 2026. And this is going to be where carriers are going to be required to provide more specific and concrete reasoning for these denials. And not only will they have to provide a more clear explanation to providers, but they're also going to have to publicly report these metrics on authorizations. This is great because it requires insurance companies to provide, again, provide physicians with a clear-cut reason for these denials so that providers and their support staff have better direction when performing things like reconsiderations or if the doctor has to call to do a peer-to-peer, or if, if the office has to fight an appeal, it gives the, the staff a much more direct path on what we need to be looking at in order to get these decisions overturned. I think part of my favorite part of this is going to be the public reporting measures, that these insurance companies are going to have to provide these metrics to patients who are searching to purchase coverage through the exchanges that are available as to how often that they approve and deny these services. They're also going to have to report to these patients how long it takes to process some of these requests. So I think, it, in my opinion, it brings a, a much needed transparency and accountability for these insurance companies who, in today's day and time, tend to kind of pass all of the ownership off to the provider when a patient calls the insurance company to inquire about the authorization. This new rule is going gonna, is gonna to force that insurance company to be much more transparent with the patient. Well, that is awesome. Yeah, because that's transparency. It's, it's what's hidden behind the curtain. You know, why is this? Because sometimes a patient can take action 
you know, the patient is now a big part of, of this whole system that's RCM. Right, right. And that allows the patient to then kind of participate a little bit in, in their own health care. You know what I mean? So I, I just I think that that's that may be one of my favorite things is that added transparency there. The last big thing that I noticed when I was looking over the final rules, something that's really important to me is that, you know, in 2026, CMS is, is going to be shortening the time frame for these prior authorization requests. And it's going to require that payers render decision within 72 hours on these expedited or urgent requests. And it shortens the time frame on a standard request down to seven calendar days. And again, that's seven calendar days, not seven business days. Again, this is arguably one of the most important changes for the healthcare providers as we believe that this has the potential to save lives in some situations. Oh, indeed, uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, just shortening the allowed turnaround time for determination, allowing providers to treat their patients in a time frame that can be critical to the patient's recovery. I mean, a lot of payers follow that 72-hour mark when it comes to the urgent and the expedited requests, but the shorter the shortening of the standard request turnaround time is, is, is really significant. I, at this point, some payers can take up to 14 to 21 days. Wow. Yeah. To respond. Yeah. To respond with the request. And so for patients who are dealing with things like cancer, chronic illness, 21 days is a long time to wait for me to, you know, check the current status of my illness, you know? So I think that that's great. And even while we would like to see this time frame shortened down for those standard requests, I think that this is a really good start. And to even kind of enforce that a little more, CMS is going to be entering into like an enforcement policy, particularly with the Medicare Advantage plans. And this can include up to sanctions from CMS in the form of monetary penalties for payers who do not comply with the new timeframes. So I think that this is wonderful. Wow, that's amazing. And so I know everyone's probably wondering, well, well how are they going to do this? You know, this this sounds like a lot of good news, but you may be thinking, okay, well, now where's the how? And I don't want to get too technical or get in too much of the weeds. I don't know if anybody who's listening is technical. Maybe some developers or programmers will totally understand some of the language that's outlined in the final rule regarding this. But there are some technical requirements that the payers must meet, particularly it's the impacted payers. Now, remember, those impacted payers are those managed care plans, uh, Medicare plans, CHIP plans, so forth. But they have to implement what's called HL7 buyer prior authorization APIs. And for those that don't know, an API is an application programming interface. FHIR is actually an acronym. That's F-H-I-R, not the typical FHIR that you would strike a match, but it stands for Fast Healthcare Interoperability Resources. And HL7 is is just a health level seven. It's an organization that was committed to uh, the standardization of certain protocols for interoperability. And that's what it's all about. Interoperability is about how communication can improve. They want to bring efficiencies to the utilization process by implementing these APIs between providers, between payers, and automating it really end-to-end with that prior authorization process. And as you alluded to earlier, Jennifer, Medicare fee-for-service has already been implemented in a large part last year with this electronic prior authorization API. So they've already got a proven ground there. 
basically. They've demonstrated that there is some efficiencies that other payers could realize by implementing these, these APIs. And so I just wanted to just take a little time to briefly go over these APIs a little bit, just to kind of where say, okay, well, this is the how. So remember, an API is where you can actually, just think of it as, as you can actually plug and play, so to speak. It's a little more complicated than that, but you plug and play where one system can communicate with another system. And you're right, there's program language written around it. But there's essentially four they have. One is patient access API, and it's exactly what that is. It's going to be transparency. This is where that transparency is going to come into play. Uh, in addition to giving patients access of more of their data, this will help patients understand the payer's prior authorization processes and the impact on their care. They'll also have access to, beginning in January 1st of 2026, they're going to require the impact that this API has or, or the usage of this API has. Now, the actual implementation of this API and all the APIs actually are not slated for January 1, 2027. That's when they have to have it implemented. But it's interesting that they have language in here that beginning January 1, 2026, they're going to start requiring a report of metrics to CMS on the usage of this API, which tells me they're going to expect these payers to have these implemented a little quicker than usual. You're in trouble if you don't have it by then, but there's an expectation to have some kind of metrics on usage of this. Next thing, there's a provider access API. And just like it, the name alludes to, it's for provider access. And this is to facilitate care coordination and support movement toward value-based care models. And we'll get into that a little second with regards to how this impacts MIPS. They want to share the patient data with in-network providers with whom the patient has tr a treatment relationship. And they're going to require data availability. And the data that they require has to do with claims and encounter data, as well as specified prior authorization information. They're also required to associate patients with in-network or enrolled providers with whom they're having a treatment relationship with. This allows patients to opt out also to have their data available to providers under these requirements. So essentially patients just opt out to not have to share this. And they also have to provide plain language information that's actually written into the final rule. And that's very important. No longer have this ambiguous clinical speak or even technical speak, if you will. It's going to be in plain language utilizing this API data exchange and, and the ability to opt out. And then there's that payer-to-payer -payer API. So we've talked about the patient relationship with all this, provider relationship with all this, and now payer-to-payer -payer where the payers are going to be communicating with each other. And this will make easily available the claims and encounter data across the board among payers. And also help them also, just like with the other APIs, they'll be able to share information about certain prior authorizations. Now, this is only required to pull patient data with a data service within five years of the request date. So there is some limits. They don't have to go back all the way. And I think five years is good enough. I don't think you need to go further than that. But there's also an opt-in process for this that patients need to provide permission. And it's required, again, just like the, the, the previous API, has to be in that plain language educational resource. And that explains the benefit of this payer-to-payer -payer API. And then last, but certainly not least, that's what we're all talking about here. It's the prior authorization API. And this is a populated with its list of covered items and services, the identify the documentation requirements for prior authorization approval, 
and also supports prior authorization requests and responses. It's just what you alluded to with one of the benefits, and this is this API is going to require that. So these prior authorization APIs must also communicate whether the payer approves the prior authorization request, whether it was denied authorization, or also give information uh, regarding that. So hope that wasn't too geeked out for everyone, <laughs> but I think it's important to understand exactly how this was all going to play out. And it also builds a framework around, wow, that's going to be a lot of work. Really not as easy as you think to actually implement this because you got to think about it. You have certain entities that operate in silos and the whole point of interoperability is to bring them all together under one tent. And this is, and then from a prior authorization perspective, these APIs, and I'm glad they've standardized that. And they're not the only ones. There are other associations out there that, that participate in the standardization. They just couldn't wait on on the government anymore to make these standards. But at least these standards will have everybody under one tent, right? We've seen also, uh, and to that, a lot of the commercial payers just couldn't wait. So this is just not just a Medicare initiative. You know, commercial also initiated relief for providers as well. So Jennifer, can you elaborate on how these payers are also granting wins uh, to physicians? Yeah, so absolutely. So in 2023, United Healthcare eliminated about 20% of the codes requiring auth across their Medicare Advantage, commercial, their Oxford individual exchange, and their community plans, right? So these, it is something to, to bear in mind that these codes do vary across plans. But United Healthcare has been really great. They provide individual lists for each one of their health plans on their website. So it's really important that providers are reviewing these and reviewing the specific plan level benefits for each patient to confirm the auth requirements. But again, I mean, eliminating 20% of, of those codes that require authorization is a huge relief for doctors. Now, in 2024, United Healthcare has also announced that they're going to be launching a gold card program for qualified providers where codes will go through an administrative notification process rather than a complete authorization process. So, we will obviously on our end keep an eye out for any updates on that and, and obviously make them available once we have them. But, you know, again, just that that taking that step forward by United Healthcare without having to actually be mandated to, I think is a great move. Cigna has also followed suit. They've removed almost 25% of medical services from their PA requirements. So when you go down and you start looking, this this comes to be approximately about a total of 600 codes that they removed. About 100 of these codes are surgical codes. So to our surgeons out there, Cigna has granted you some relief. About 200 of these codes were genetic testing codes, which with genetic testing becoming more and more popular over the last couple of years, I think that this is also, again, a huge, a huge win for providers to be able to use that new science and new technology and have the plan cover that as opposed to the patient paying cash. And again, numerous other codes for medical equipment, prosthetics, and other types of medical services. Now Cigna is reporting that with this recent update and removal of that, those 600 codes, that now prior authorization only applies to less than 4% of medical services for most of your Cigna customer base. Wow, that's, that's significant. That's a, 
that's a lot. And I know that, that these two pairs really are, are kind of lead the way. I know there are others. These are just merely uh, two examples. Yeah, this is a Medicare initiative uh, with this final rule. And it's like, okay, what's well, Medicare only? Um, commercial payers would probably follow suit. But this is a prime example where the commercials actually lead the way uh, with a right. lot of the things that they've already done and setting that, that example. Now, since all of this is helping with interoperability, CMS is adding a new MIPS measure for this. So uh, obviously, this is going to benefit providers where they can get credit with their MIPS score by assessing this new measure within the promoting interoperability category under MIPS, as well as the Medicare Promoting Interoperability Program. Now, the title of this measure is Electronic Prior Authorization. Very creative, isn't it? So it's very straightforward. I like it. So MIPS eligible clinicians will report a prior authorization measure beginning in the calendar year 2027 performance period, which is the 2029 MIPS payment year. don't want to go down this MIPS track or get distracted here, but anyone involved in MIPS know it's a two-year lag. You have a performance period, which is, say, in this example, is 2027, and then your performance will be regulated and, and apply to the 2029 year, whether you get a positive or negative penalty or neutral payment adjustment on your Medicare payments. Now, this is, applies also for eligible hospitals and critical access hospitals. That'll be beginning with the calendar year 2027 EHR reporting period. So this applies to both your ambulatory and also your acute care, your, CA, your CAC, so to speak. So this will be an assistation measure. They wanted to make it more of a numerator-denominator type of, of a measure assistation for which the MIPS eligible clinician and eligible hospitals or your critical access hospitals reports a yes-no response on the applicable claim for the exclusion rather than the proposed numerator denominator. To successfully report this electronic prior authorization me measure for MIPS eligible clinicians, just you must attest yes to requesting a prior authorization electronically VI, the prior authorization API, and it has to go through this prior authorization API using data from a, a CERT, that's a Certified Electronic Health Record Technology. If it's not a CERT, that's why a CERT is so important. The whole point of promoting interoperability is meaning, you know, it's the, the artist formerly known as meaningful use, as I like to say. And you really ought to do this for one medical item or service ordered during that calendar year 2027 performance period to report this. That means you only have to do one prior authorization submission, and you can click yes to the assistation for that. Now, for eligible hospitals and critical access hospitals, again, you, you must attest yes to requesting a prior authorization request electronically via the prior authorization API, using data from a CERT, just like with the eligible clinicians, for at least one hospital discharge and medical item or service ordered during the 2027 EHR reporting period. So in both examples, you really just need one instance for that to occur and get credit for that with MIPS. So that will conclude the, the MIPS segment. <laughs> and I'll also conclude with what we wanted to cover today, but I just wanted to open it up for some questions from the audience. So I do see one here is great question. Love this question is how is Infinix handling these changes? And I know, Jennifer, maybe you and I can tag team on this, but I know that you were heavily involved in the changes that happened for 2023, right? Right. So in 2023, 
when CMS added those 53 codes that now require an authorization. Here on the Infinix side, we immediately update our platform. We update our software so that it recognizes that those codes that now come over for Medicare do require an authorization and then prompts that authorization to be worked by our team. And not only with CMS, but with uh, other payers, even commercial plans, we are regularly checking the requirements throughout the year just to ensure that our platform is up to date with all current payer requirements and that we are providing, you know, our clients with the best information. Yeah, that's excellent. And I think that's a testament to not only you know, working with these payers and checking their guidelines, but we we have relationships with them or our, our team, our development team, our product team have really good, strong relationships with a lot of the large payers as well as TPAs. And in fact, even in doing beta projects to implement some of these rules with some of these <laughs> payers as well. And, and not only that, to kind of give a little more credence to how we're handling these changes, but also some of the others, Infinix is also working very heavily with the DaVinci project on working through those utilization of Fire HL7 help create that interoperability between payers, TPAs, as well as providers and EMRs. A little bit more about the DaVinci uh, project. It's it's a collaboration of stakeholders regarding EDI, HL7 standards, all the APIs that I had mentioned earlier, because there there are many other APIs that are involved in this, and they just came together. The DaVinci project is just, again, another example. We just can't wait on, on, on any legislation to standardize things just got together and created their own standards. So we've been heavily involved in that project to lead the way. It has a lot of other like clearinghouses, payers as well that are involved in that. And so just leading the charge to make sure that we stay on top of not only changes for prior authorization, but any other the changes that help with the transfer of data. Because the whole goal is interoperability. And if, if we're going to get this done, then there has to be some standardization. Again, as I said earlier, you know, just having everyone under the same tent communicating and speaking the same language. I do see another one here that says the timeframes are a great start, but now how can we speed this up? So yeah, I think you alluded to it as well, Jennifer, that it's, it's it definitely is a, at least a something, a great start. I think right. for me, I think seven days, wow, that still seems like a long time, but it is a great start. From my experience, you can have a voice in this. There are associations like the AMA, the MGMA, HFMA, you know, each one of these associations matter because they collect, they, they put together the collective voice of their members uh, and the, the concerns with, with issues like this. Prior authorization is just one. It could be E&M coding. It can be eligibility. It can be claims denials. It can be whatever the, the case may be. And so they serve as advocates for any of the issues that are out there in the RCM world. So you can actually get involved by, you know, being a part of those memberships. You can also get involved personally, one-on-one. Every time a final rule is issued, it was preceded by a initial rule that came out that uh, everybody has full reign to comment on. There is no restrictions on who can comment on the proposed rule. And, and there's a time period in which to do that. It's typically 90 days. So they give a lot of opportunity. And if you don't say anything, then change doesn't happen. So it's very powerful. Your voice is very powerful. And when you get physicians and patients and legislations all fighting for the same thing, big things can happen. And CMS will listen. 
I've found that they that they align themselves with AMA to try and figure out how things are going to go down from a legislative standpoint, as well as MGMA. I know as big advocacy, they have a whole department that's just advocacy uh, regarding the changes like this. I don't know. Do you have anything to add uh, for that, Jennifer? No, I mean, I, I, I just wholeheartedly agree, you know, with what you said. It, it's, it's very important. CMS will listen. So it's very important that doctors and facilities get involved. Like you said, they initially released the proposed rule and they allow people to comment on those. So I think paying attention to those kind of things and offering your voice as a provider, as a facility, and, and just giving that feedback because ultimately we all just care about taking care of our patients. And I think the more vocal we are about that and the more we bring the issues that we run to to the forefront, that's how we affect change. Awesome. Awesome. Well, I don't see any other questions. Just be, tuned, be sure to check out our website and look for some invites coming regarding next week's office hours where we'll be talking about RCM assessment for critical access hospitals and be reviewing some case studies on how that assessment has really improved and affected their RCM models, particularly in charge capture. So I urge you to sign up for that as well. Until then, have a safe and blessed week, and we'll see you next time. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, everyone. Thanks for joining us. Subscribe to get notified when our next episode is online. For more information for how we can help you increase reimbursements at your company, check out our website at infinix.com. That's I-N-F-I-N-X dot com.